0: Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome
1: to another edition of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source of. Edited accurate information on African American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African American Wellness Project. I'm Jason James, executive producer, and I'm joined by our esteemed host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a physician, medical reporter, and a past president of the National Medical Association.
2: I want to <laughs> welcome people to the Wellness Watch. I will be here every week at 4, at 7:30 Eastern Time and 4:30 Pacific Time. Uh, today's topic is asthma. So if you've got any questions about asthma, we have one of the world's experts who will be joining us, uh, and we have answer all your questions uh, about asthma, especially uh, its impact in the African-American community. While we wait for our guests, let me just tell you a little bit about the African-American Wellness Project. We are a project based primarily out of Oakland, California, but we have people all over the country. We're a health education project. We're a project that's designed to help and, and, to, and, to, and to instruct uh, African-Americans how to get the best out of the healthcare system. There's not one of you listening out there now who has not been either disrespected, uh, ignored, uh, or betrayed by the healthcare system as it currently exists in this country. And so, what we are trying to do with it, uh, giving you the education you need, bringing you the experts, and asking you to ask question, your questions, um, we're trying to help you build your own healthcare system so that you can overcome some of the barriers that African Americans, women, and other ethnic minorities. Um, uh, take on. Uh, And asthma is a good one for us to start our new project with, because so many African Americans have asthma. Forty, 53 million people have have asthma. Uh, African Americans three times more likely to die from asthma. African American women with the highest mortality rates uh, in the uh, country from asthma. So if you've got a, this is a program that is no better than your willingness to call and ask us questions uh, and, uh, and try to get some of Uh, your concerns answered. And so every week we'll be here uh, to do that. So before we start about that, it's always a good thing to talk with Mr. Dean about COVID. Now you may not know this, but Mr. Dean has done so many of these programs. He's become (laughs) the world expert on the COVID virus. There's no element of covid I just made that word up, that he has not been able uh, to discuss. And I think that's a good thing for us and a good thing for our program. This week, it's all about the Delta virus, the variant of the COVID-19 um, of the COVID virus, um, especially deadly, especially infectious, um, um, and it's certainly spreading like wildfire across the world, and not only uh, certainly in this country. Uh, it's a much bigger threat for vaccinated people, and that's really all I have to say about it right now, uh, because we've talked with everybody
0: about it's a danger for unvaccinated people. Let's make sure that I get that that I'm, distinction. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's a yeah, it's a danger for unvaccinated people. Unvaccinated people. Thank you for that correction.
2: Yeah. Uh, and, and so we've asked people to can seriously consider vaccination. No lectures coming from here. Um, uh, we're not going to lecture you, but we want you to keep uh, an open mind. If you need more information, go to our our website at awellnessproject.org or go to um, go to city. Of information from the CDC. And don't get caught up in all these attacks on Dr. Fauci. Now, Dr. Fauci was a savior for all these people. And here they come down j- trying to jam him on the fact that they're, he's destroying his civil liberties. What most people don't realize is that most of these Republicans, and I, I don't want to be partial, but most of his critics have gotten vaccinated. Yes, They just won't tell you that they've gotten vaccinated. Yes. And so consequently, but I don't think Any of us, whether you are vaccinated or not, can come down on Dr. Fauci like that. What do you think, Ellis?
0: You know, I I liken it to what happened at the very beginning of the pandemic. And remember how there were people that were downplaying its importance and saying how it wasn't that big of a deal. Don't worry. Keep going. And and while they were telling you that, they were also selling stocks and changing things in their portfolio because they were preparing because they knew. Uh, the significance of it. And that's what I think that's what we're seeing now um, outside of partisan politics. And uh, I'm not even going to mention any party, but I'm going to say this, that make sure, you know, the vaccination status of the people that are telling you or that are speaking out against, especially leaders, elected leaders that are speaking out against the vaccine. Uh, many of, of whom were first in line, got were a part of that first list, that got vaccinated uh, early on in the process, and now they're out there speaking against because it, it gives them uh, political favor uh, for their constituents. And so we do have to be very, very cognizant of the context of what's happening. So um, I've seen a few, you know, kind of extreme videos, but I've seen some videos where People were giving the, the previous administration uh, credit for getting the vaccine developed, but then still said in the next breath, mm-hmm. they're not taking it. So it, it's it, it's it's very interesting. So I would say uh, go to the African-American Wellness Project website to get more information. Uh, at blackdoctor.org, we have a COVID uh, resource center that you can go and check out. and has questions. It has answers and articles and videos and everything you need to know or want to know about the vaccines and so i would say this The last thing i'm going to say and then i'm going to turn it back over to you dr lenore is um if you're going to do research don't just do research about the vaccines do research about what it means to catch covid and what those the the life that you may or may not that you may or may not have after uh, catching covid even if you survive. And so there's <laughs> different things that have to have that you'll have to do going forward, including listing COVID as a pre-existing condition on your medical records and on your insurance records. And you might also have long hauler uh, disease. And so You, I would say check that out. Um, and they're still studying the long-term effects of people having uh, had and lived through COVID. So just you know, because you will survive. It's not like the flu, where the flu kind of goes away when you recover. Flu, uh, COVID tends to have a longer effect. So, uh,
2: that's to to that's as we end this conversation on COVID, let's just share one man, uh, actor Delroy Lindo's experience with the virus.
3: I understand the hesitancy and the resistance that some folk may have to taking the COVID-19 vaccine. And you absolutely have a right to feel hesitant. The COVID is real. And I know from firsthand experience, I had it. I wouldn't wish COVID on anyone. I fully recovered, but I don't want to ever be that sick again. You and all the people that you love are at risk from COVID-19 infection. So please get vaccinated for yourselves, your family, and your community. Thank you.
2: say that that's, uh, that there's a lot of it. So uh, with that, let's uh, let's move on to our special guest. And for those of you who don't know the African American Wellness Project, uh, much of what we talk about today will be in our podcast. Our podcast uh, comes out once a week. It's called Black Doctors Speak with two S, Black Doctors Speak. So the information you get here you want to share with your friends and family about asthma, then, um, then uh, go to our podcast, Black Doctors Speak It'll be available uh, probably in a couple of days, uh, and I think we're extremely lucky to have with us Dr. Leroy Graham. Dr. Leroy Graham, to those of you who don't know him, is one of the world's experts in the diagnosis and management of asthma, and especially in the African American community. Uh, Dr. Graham was a uh, we were, we actually were uh, somewhat contemporary. I think I'm usually a little bit before everybody else. <laughs> somebody's
0: got to place a trail somebody's got to place a trail
2: trained, trained partially in the service you were Colorado I believe are, are one of those uh, high powered hospitals in Colorado but without question acknowledged as the world's expert on Af- asthma in the African American community uh, and just asthma in general so if you've got questions about your asthma, your grandmother's asthma, your children's asthma this is the show where well, we take those questions and try to make it a con- most of our content. So yeah, you know how to reach us by getting in the chat. Dr. Graham, welcome to our program. Thank you, Mike, for this opportunity. Man, that's quite a background you got there, brother. I mean, that's a, I mean, I got to step it up a little bit. Looking <laughs> you, at that know,
3: background. you know, we downsize when we semi-retired. This is my cave.
2: <laughs> well, I got a bunch of questions for you before our audience um, gets uh, started. Uh, you know, it seems like when I first started in practice, there were 12 million people with asthma. Then it went up to 18. Now it's something like 23, 26. What's happening? Is asthma is asthma more common, or is it uh, is asthma more common, or is it uh, is it uh, something different? No, I I think both are
3: true. I think asthma is more common. I think some of that is due to uh, enhanced diagnostic efficiency. I think other is due to a lot of things happening in our environment, you know. And I think that we are now recognizing it more. I think it is certainly more increasingly prevalent throughout my career among minorities, particularly in the urban environment. So I think there is a real increase, and there is a real appreciation of asthma. I think more people are getting appropriately diagnosed, which. You and I know in the old days that was a problem. We got recurrent pneumonia. What the child really had was asthma. Now,
2: is it one of the why is, it, why is it, the statistics that I mentioned at the beginning of this program, asthma three times more likely to uh, 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 kill a child as African American, uh, African American women with the highest mortality rates. What is that all about? Why well, it's, it's true.
3: absolutely true, Mike. Uh, in both cases, now there may be genetic factors that we don't appreciate, but clearly. In the African-American population, those statistics are sadly quite true. Um, I think they reflect a a lot of things. I think they reflect uh, a little bit better enhanced diagnosis on our part, but also the the unique circumstances that I think impact African-Americans, both in terms of uh, the incidence of asthma and the severity of that asthma. So I think it is both more prevalent and it is both more morbid or more of a problem among our people.
2: Now, you know, I think one of the key issues is and that And For so many people, the term asthma is a confusing term. What actually does asthma mean, is it, and is it all one clinical presentation, one clinical disease?
3: I'm not sure that it is one clinical disease. I think we would argue that there are or you know, style or presentation differences among patients. We know, for instance, that African-American uh, females and adults have more prevalent asthma. It's African-American males when they're young. We also know that asthma is a little bit more prevalent in the urban environment, uh, maybe due to a lot of provocative environmental factors. Uh, but clearly, asthma is at a heightened prevalence among people of color, particularly African American males, pre uh, prepubertally and post maybe more the female. Uh, and the other thing I think is even more than the prevalence is a relative severity in our population. We tend to have asthma that for a variety of reasons, uh, either its management or the intrinsic uh Intensity of the disease, it is more prevalent and sadly more morbid and sadly more lethal.
2: Now, when we talk about it being, you um, talk about morbidity. Morbidity to uh, those that are not familiar with all these terms means how sick we are. Uh, it's often been said that much of the sickness that we have is because we are not uh, getting the proper information, or it's been linked to genetics, it's been linked to a lot of uh, other things. Uh, we, I've asked the question uh, you know, already once, but I, I'm still kind of puzzled as to why this is such a, uh, a, a worse problem for African-Americans. Is it something we do or is it something the disease does or is it something that they do? I'm not sure it's they. I think it's the environment and it's
3: also some of the realities, not so much we do, but where we are. For instance, in most urban centers like Chicago, like Atlanta, like maybe Oakland, African Americans tend to be, tend to populate neighborhoods, which are aside uh, travel quarters, transportation quarters. Like if you look at Atlanta, where I did most of my practice, you know, there's there's an eight and sometimes 16 lane thoroughfare going through the middle of the black community. So we have a lot of stuff with car pollution and so forth. We also know that in a lot of these areas in terms of where the energy sources come from, the coal-fired power plants and so forth are getting more prevalent. We know in rural areas, there's been there's a study out of uh, years ago in Alabama that people next to a refining place, place where they were processing waste had a high prevalence. So I think there's environmental factors. The other environmental factor that's that's really uniquely is when we live in stressful situations, when we activate that. Fight or flight system that feeds into inflammation. We know, for instance, a work out of Englewood in Chicago, you know, that asthma was most prevalent in neighborhoods that had a high rate of violent crime. Uh, and someone, you know, I put the point that your nervous system, your auto- autonomic nervous system, is wired to respond. So we overrespond to a lot of environmental factors. And then finally, We often live in substandard housing where we're exposed to more vermin, we're exposed to more pollution, uh, way back, lead-based paint, a lot of things like that. So there are environmental factors that I think are superimposed on a genetic predisposition that makes us have asthma that is more prevalent. And
2: So for people listening out there, what are the basis, what do you do do, uh, to make the diagnosis, and what are the principles, the, the pillars of treatment? for the patient who has asthma? Well, I think the diagnosis is first and foremost a clinical one. We
3: can uh, define it better, confirm it when we do lung function tests. But, but really, it's a clinical diagnosis to get us started, okay? And and the pillars of the of therapy is based on the underlying mechanisms of disease, and it's chronic inflammation. So we know that the inside lining of the air passages are raw and inflamed, and as such, they're over-responsive to various stimuli. Some may be allergic, but some may be environmental. So a mainstay of someone that has persistent asthma is a maintenance anti-inflammatory agent, for instance, an inhaled corticosteroid. And let me just point out right there, when I have that first discussion with patients, the eyes light up, they talk about all the bad things of steroids and muscle men and so forth. It's not that steroid. It's a steroid in microgram doses that is given and impacts your airway lining to decrease that reactivity. We also know that we will use bronchodilators that open up the airway on an as-needed basis. Now, as the asthma gets more severe, we have combination medicines where maybe we have a, a steroid uh, complex with a long acting bronchodilator. And now, lately, we found, particularly in African Americans, there's a lot of utility in what we call anticholinergic drugs that can also go with this. But it's a whole thing about getting into a situation where, in a practice like yours or a practice like mine, an African American or anyone with asthma can be characterized physiologically, a good history can be taken, allergy testing done by whatever means to de- really define what is triggering that asthma and what is causing inflammation. And most importantly, or not most importantly, but often ignored is what do we do to the environment? Where do we take the provocative elements out of that environment? And that's something that's often a challenge financially in terms of substandard housing in the inner cities
0: across the United States. We've got a question here from the, uh, from the comments and this is coming from somebody that's in uh, England. And wow. she, she is saying that she, hey, you rock the world, man. He's <laughs> <laughs> worldwide. I told y'all at the beginning he's yeah. worldwide. But uh, uh, Tasha is saying that she's on a steroid inhaler for the rest of her life, uh, flutiform and asperiva. Uh, I think that's what she's saying. I often have I often have to have oral steroids. Do you think this is usual long term treatment? Well, if indeed that is, you know, I believe that that's what she's
3: taking. By definition, she has moderate to severe asthma. That's what it's taking. She's on an inhaled steroid. She's on a long-acting anti, what we call anti-muscarinic, which is another type of long-term dilator. And she often still has to have oral steroids. So I would say she's on a pretty aggressive regimen, yet she's still requiring steroids for when her asthma decompensates. So I would think that, and Mike... Please wait in here. Maybe we need to look at the environment. Maybe we need to see if she's sensitized to things. Would the immunotherapy help her or something like that? And then sometimes when we talk about the latest and greatest, we have biologic agents that can be taken, say, on a monthly basis to alter her inflammatory response. So I would tell her that I would have a conversation with her doctor. I'm on these medicines that seem to be appropriate. I'm taking them, I'm taking them appropriately, and I'm not doing well. And, and this, this is a key point. I teach all my patients, particularly African-American patients, you have to be a, an empowered consumer. You know, if you got a car, a hoopty, and it's not working, you're back in the mechanic or the dealer's face. We have to have that same attitude about our health. We can't settle. We, if, if a doctor makes a diagnosis, puts you on a medication, tells you what to expect, and it does not occur, and you're taking it, you need to come back and say, hey, this is not working. What's our next step? What's our plan? What are we missing?
0: You know, it's interesting you said environment because this was her next comment. When she goes to the Caribbean, I don't even have to take my meds daily, but as soon as I land back in London, I am dependent on it. So I think that is a, a classic example of what you're speaking to is there is an environment, environment something in her environment is inducing or in, in causing her asthma to act up to where she has to be on that kind of stringent regimen. So she might want to you know, we can't tell people to move because you know yeah. that, that there's a financial component right. to this. Can- <laughs> so, you know, we don't yeah. want to you know, flex much, much, too
3: much. Have a conversation. <laughs> she might want well to have a conversation with her doctor that, you know, is there something else in the environment that you're not aware of that we can't do something about? Also, when she right. goes to the Caribbean, she's going to a much more pastoral environment. There's not the same type of heavy industry. There's probably not the same amount of road traffic. So I'm not surprised that in that environment that she does a little bit better. But if we return to that urban environment, we know there are predictable things that that can cause that. And here's another important thing, and, and my colleague, Dr. Lenore, would agree with this if you had a problem with your car, if you had a problem with your stereo equipment, it wasn't working right, and someone that was taking care of it and you weren't satisfied, you'd ask for another opinion. We don't take that same empowered consumerism into our health. So I would tell her that have that discussion and be respectful, but if you don't really get a response, well, hey, can I see it? I think in London, it would be called a respirologist. Can I see a respirologist? Can I see a specialist? Can I see an allergist? And, and again, that's what we as a people across all parameters of health. We often have lower expectations. We don't have that empowered consumer that we need to have.
2: No, I would I'd like to say, I agree. We're talking about Dr. Leroy Graham, we're talking about asthma. I will make the blanket statement to you now that if you're having asthma and you're having a lot of problems, something is wrong. Because with all of the things that we can do diagnostically and all of the things that we can do therapeutically, we should be able to control your asthma every death well, most every death from asthma is unnecessary each year each week or each um, each week 10 people die from asthma disproportionately african americans so if you're out there with asthma you're not doing well you got some questions this is this is the time to to talk to one of the world's experts that's what our program's all about um, and not so, just you <laughs> well. I, you know, I didn't want to throw myself in there. Uh-huh. You know, Dr. Norris forgot I'm, I'm, more about it. I'm, I'm, some, <laughs> I'm, I'm somewhere in the game. Uh, no, a chance to talk to Dr. Leroy Graham, uh, I think, can make a big difference in how you at least perceive
0: uh, your disease. I talk to us a little bit about some of the newer medicine. Hold on, Dr. Norris. We got oh, another sorry, question please go from, from Renee, and she would like to know... If you can develop asthma later in life and, and and how and I will I'm gonna add something to that if I could, Renee, is that COPD or, or is that related to COPD or you know, what's the relationship between asthma early in life and COPD later in life? Okay. So first off, you can be diagnosed
3: for the first time with asthma at any point in your life. Typically, we see it come in, in children initially. Many of the older, when I, when I started working in a charity clinic, uh, I found many adults had not been diagnosed with asthma, treated as chronic bronchitis, but they never smoked. So sometimes the diagnosis is missed. In my opinion, and it's more opinion than science, most times with a good history, I can find in most patients, there were early pre-diagnostic signs of the asthma. So I think that's important. But we also know that some people living in certain environments, okay, may develop asthma later in life. Some people genetically are wired to do that. But it's very interesting. And when I started taking care of adults in the, in the clinic, how many times I diagnosed patients with asthma who gave me a set of symptoms that I think have appropriately looked at earlier in life was asthma all along. And then the next question she asked was about COPD. Well, COPD is, is, you can't untangle that from being exposed to cigarette smoke. And uh, I grew up with parents that smoked, even, let me admit it, smoked a little bit myself. Okay. Uh, I don't have COPD. I do still have a little bit of mild asthma. So, you know, it's important to realize that sometimes diagnosis are delayed and the symptoms are overlooked. So that's why I try and empower my patients, especially when I talk, is you have to know the basics about the disease. We can't be totally passive in that physician-doctor relationship. You know, we have to bring something to the game. And very importantly, if you're being treated for one diagnosis or one condition and you're not improving, we have to have that informed consumerism, respectfully
0: challenging your physician, saying, I'm doing everything you say and I'm not getting better. Well, what are the, what, what are those, what are three things that uh, every patient should know about asthma if they're going in? What are three things that they should be armed with when they go to talk to their doctor if they feel like there's some some breathing issues?
3: Okay. One, the expectation that your condition can be controlled. You know, okay. like Star Trek, we you got the technology. We have the medications to do this. So that okay. should be an assumption when they go to the doctor. And, and, and not being radical, but but expecting that. We should also know that asthma often has external triggers. So our environment is going to be very, very important. This is where we get into the dual relationship with the doctor and the patient, because I can't go into your house and control your environment. I can test or discuss the things that you need to to, uh, remediate in that environment. And then finally, like I said, is is the whole thing of being in in an active relationship with your doctor where there is an expectation that this doctor can make you well, and that if you're not, and then finally, the, there's, there's another one. The other thing is we have to be responsible. You have to be right. a human or take your medication. You have to clean up your environment if the data is provocative. And and my colleague, uh, Dr. Lenore, will tell me that probably uh, allergy testing is underutilized, particularly when we get into asthma that's problematic with a considerable burden of drug therapy. We overlook that, particularly pulmonologists and generalists. We don't think about allergies. And quite frankly, there could be something in the environment that is provocative that can be mitigated, can be reduced. And smart guys like Dr. Lenore are all over
2: that. <laughs> you seem to give me a lot of credit, but not I a lot give of you time. credit. Man. You're elder. <laughs> you know, I'm an African, man. We got respect to elders, man. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we continue with some of the other questions? What about, do uh, 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 we have another question?
0: We do. Um, this is from Brandon Knight, and he's saying, hey, doctor, my lung collapsed recently. I have asthma, and it seems pretty mild. By any chance, could this have happened due to a heavy intake of marijuana smoke?
3: Yes. Okay. <laughs> now, first <laughs> off, let's, let's be honest. I'm glad we brought this up because this is often the elephant in the room. I don't smoke, doc, I, I, and I do a little weed. Well, no, you smoke, okay? If you light it, one end of it's burned, the other's in your mouth, you smoke. But here's the deal. You can get a lung collapse okay, from a bad asthma attack, and usually what it is is mucus is plugged in, part of your lung collapses. But in terms of marijuana smoke, what we found is that there is some evidence that there are cannabinoids that actually relax the airway. However, not if you have to burn them or combust them to get in your lungs. Now, you know, I'm not I'm I'm an older guy now, you know, know about medical marijuana and all that stuff. So I'm not going to throw marijuana up under the bus. But marijuana is not is absolutely not, despite what what the reggae guys tell us. It's not a treatment for asthma. It has a very irritating thing because we usually combust it. okay and it's a a wild weed and it can be a very big irritant. So I would suggest uh, to this young lady, I've got nothing. I have nothing against marijuana. But I would argue that if you have a respiratory disease, what I told my patients, if, something, if one end of something is burning, combusting, the other one cannot be in your mouth and breathing. It's as simple as that. Okay. So I would have to say that the first thing I would do if I knew that she was smoking is I'd say, not against the ganja, not against the marijuana, but you can't smoke
0: it. You absolutely can't. Okay. I, I, so I, follow, follow up on that real quick. Sorry, uh, Dr. Noor. Uh, follow up on that real quick. is is could they get the same effect if they used an edible um, form of THC? If they're trying to get some sort of effect from the from using marijuana, could they get that effect by using an edible, therefore they don't have to smoke or inhale smoke into their lungs to get the effect?
3: I wanna be careful how I answer this, okay? Okay, all right. <laughs> there is a beneficial effect of it, but I okay. would argue that first and foremost, switch to the edible so it's no longer a provocative agent in your lungs, okay? And then let's look and see if it has any benefit because if you're smoking it, whatever possible benefit. And there is some benefit. There are studies about cannabinoids in terms of bronchodilation, but if it is burning, that is, that's lost. So right. I would suggest if she wants to explore the value of marijuana in her therapy, and there is some evidence, I would go an edible root, a non combustible root.
2: Could, could, you say, could you say a few words about the puffer, the albuterol? So mm-hmm. many of my patients and so many of the patients through the years, I think albuterol is the ideal treatment for um, for asthma. Um, Talk to us a little bit about albuterol, uh, its usage and its overusage.
3: Albuterol is a rescue medication. Albuterol is a bronchodilator. It opens up your air passages when you're having symptoms. The underlying reason that those airways are so sensitive and go into spasms is inflammation. So if you have to use albuterol more than once or twice a week, You need to be on a maintenance anti-inflammatory medication, okay? And that is something that it's really hard. People say, well, I don't want to be on that steroid. It's an inhaled steroid. It's a microdose. It doesn't cause steroid toxicity and things like that. So too many people, I think, shy away from therapy. But the thing is, if you're having wheezing episodes more than twice a week, if you're having symptoms more than twice a week, whatever therapy that you're on, if you are taking it properly, is by definition inadequate. So if she has an albuterol inhaler and she's having to use it three, four times a week, she needs to be on something else, preferably a maintenance drug that decreases the underlying inflammation of the airway, which is the essence of what asthma is.
2: Is it true? And why I know it is true, is that people who use albuterol as their only maintenance medicine. Right. They're in the emergency room more, they're hospitalized more, and they die more often. Yes. And so consequently, those of you who are just using albuterol, I'm telling you, uh, it's time bomb. Uh, It certainly can get you out of trouble uh, for a while, but if you're using it as your maintenance medicine or uh, every time you exercise, you're wheezing, thinking you have some form of exercise induced asthma and you're using albuterol, those are the situations that I think you have to avoid. I would say this, that the children that I've lost or the adults that I've lost were those adults with mild asthma who were using albuterol as their only source of treatment, got in trouble and did not have the albuterol with them, uh, and ultimately succumb to the disease uh, when they really had only a mild problem. So albuterol is nothing to uh, take lightly. You're using it, as Dr. Graham says, twice a week. You need to be doing something else. And it is very interesting.
3: You know, what will happen, the class of drugs, a beta agonist that albuterol is, you will develop something called tachyphylaxis. Your response with repetitive use may be downregulated. Okay, so people relying on albuterol—old so joke. Uh, I took my albuterol it always worked until it didn't. Okay, so mm-hmm. if you're taking albuterol, like Mike said, more than twice a week, you, by definition, need to be on a maintenance anti-inflammatory medication. All right, and and I've had patients I've seen in the clinic. We're doing a charity clean. Hey, doc, my asthma is okay, man. I just need extra inhalers because you know I need that sucker four or five times a day. Well, then your asthma is not controlled. And what will happen is you get more and more inflammation. The albuterol will actually have become increasingly infected. I had a tragic case that we had in Georgia once. I had to review some death cases for the state. And it was a child that was found in a back bedroom dead with an albuterol canister that had been new the day before that was almost empty. That's I don't know any other way I can clarify that.
2: All right, do we have another question? Is there another question in the chat room?
0: Yeah, well, this one this one's more complicated. I can't even I can't even <laughs> pronounce some of the words. So I'm gonna let y'all <laughs> Yes.
3: Yes, the answer is the same as salbutamol or Ventolin. Yes, both of those are uh what we call beta agonists. They are bronchodilators. So salbutamol, uh Dentalin, which is actually a proprietary name like uh Pro-A-R or something like those. Those are all bronchodilators. And in Europe, there's much more use of salbutamol. So um, the, that's important. And sometimes we as doctors, this is where we're very deficient. We don't tell people, we don't go through the names because they're going to go talk to Pookie and the friends. They're going to tell them all kinds of medicine. We got to have them smart when they have that discussion.
0: And I think, and I think that's, that's why there's an over, from a layman's uh, point of view, I think that's why there's an over-reliance t- tendency on albuterol, because that's someone that we know, and so it, it works in the short term, and so we said, okay, I don't understand it, so if you would, uh, with this, a little bit of the time that we have left, um, kind of break down the classes of medications. So people kind of know what sure. they do. And then that way we can, so when people are watch, watching us now, they can kind of get an understanding. And then if they come back and listen to the podcast, they can understand, oh, these are the classes of uh, asthma medications.
3: Well, it might jump in anywhere you want. Bronchodilers, albuterol, Ventolin, Proventil, Proair. Those are all albuterol or albuterol-like medications to bronchodilers. We get into steroids. We talk about Bexair. We talk about Flovent. We talk about uh, other medicines like that. We talk about combination <laughs> medicines where we have a long-acting bronchodilator with an inhaled steroid. We think about Advair and things like that. Those are the combination medicines. Those are the kind of names off the top. But I, I really would like people to to zone in on that. You know, inhaled steroid. That can be the long-acting bronchodilator, there is anti, what we call anticholinergic, that's something like atrovent and things like that, or a long-acting anti-muscarinic called MAMAs and so forth. And there's now even a triple where you have a long-acting anti-muscarinic, a uh, long-acting beta axis bronchodilator, and a steroid. And those are very effective medicines, though I think sometimes they're overused because the basic steps haven't been addressed.
2: And I would say once more, once more to our audience, if you're having trouble, you're up at night, you're missing school, you're missing work, then something is wrong with your program because there's so much that can be done now. For anyone who has asthma, you just have to seek out an opportunity to do that. Uh, one of the questions that always comes up uh, is, the, is the role of stress. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and, of course, we always talk about racism uh, as a medical clinical factor. Um, What is your, uh, What is? how do you feel about that?
3: Well, hopefully you can think of her name, but there's an eloquent, I grew up in Chicago. There's an eloquent study done by an African-American general pediatrician, as I recall, who looked at the Englewood, which is a very violent district in Chicago, still is, and looked at literally across dividing lines, the prevalence and severity of asthma. So our autonomic nervous system, which is much involved in a lot of these responses, that's what tells you fight or flight. If you're in a threatened environment, you're exposed to violence, you're exposed to danger, you you maybe have domestic abuse and so forth. Those things are gonna make you wired to be more reactive. So, that is an important distinction that people need to know. And that isn't, that living that kind of thing isn't an environmental provocative agent, you know? So, that's very, very important. Uh, Also, we know that a lot of times people that are stressed with job situations and they have trouble breathing, it's, well, I'm just having a panic attack. If you're having it all the time in your are wheezing, it's not a panic attack. It's whatever's panicking you is a trigger for your asthma. And we need to really make that very, very clear. Because people will tell you, it's only in your head. And I, I, I have been in the ICU with patients taking care of them who were told that it was all in their head until they rushed to an ER, until they got in an ICU.
2: Yeah, I know. Sure it's a similar situation. Watching kids, little kids in the ICU with asthma. And you think, about what a pity it is that they didn't take better care of themselves. And we didn't, that we're not engaged with someone who actually knew what to do. And I, I will tell those of you out there who have asthma right now, get with somebody who knows what they're doing, who has a history of managing asthma, who has a success ratio. I mean, who keeps people out of the hospital and out of the emergency, who's available. There are not that many black specialists in our communities uh, for pulmonary or for asthma. And they don't necessarily have to be black specialists. Right. But get someone always when you have a chronic disease that knows what they're doing. And if you're not getting the outcome that you need, I think you want to consider making some changes. We <coughs> have been so far in asthma. My frustration after all these years is that so often in our community, we're not able to take advantage of the new understandings that we have, the new management styles that we have not just with medicine, but with other things. And it is frustrating to me as a specialist uh, to see that uh, we still have the highest numbers of children and adults who have this as a problem. What say you, Dr.
3: I, I agree 100%. I think it is an abomination when we look at the, not just the rate of asthma, but the Difference in terms of morbidity, by morbidity, having to go to the ER, having to go to the hospital, having to get uh, admitted to the ICU, and sadly dying from asthma. You know, I, I would posit that 99% of asthma deaths are preventable with good patient education and right therapy. One of the things we, we I can't let this go, I gotta, I gotta say this say it again. racism. The fact that we are the largest so called democracy in the world without a national healthcare plan people should have access to the medicines they need. And what's really idiotic about this is it would actually decrease the aggregate costs of healthcare in our country if people could have access to the medications they need. Now, I'm not running for anything, but I'm really tired of looking at this over the last 67 years of my life. you know, We need to have equal access. Uh, I'll give you a quote. Martin Luther King was my hero. He had one of the greatest quotes. He said, of all the injustices, injustice in healthcare, is perhaps the most shocking and humane, and it still persists in this country.
2: Well, this is a uh, this has been a great discussion. Uh, obviously, we could talk about asthma almost all day, but <laughs> but once again, uh, uh, Mr. Dean, ask you for three things that people should take away from our conversation yeah. here today. you
3: asking me, or Mr. Dean?
2: I'm asking Mr. D- you to ask answer what Mr. Dean asked you. So. Oh, okay. <laughs>
3: Breathing. One, sure if you are having coughing or trouble breathing with any regularity episodically or at least two times a week you need to see a doctor because you may have asthma two if you have asthma and you are taking albuterol and you're using that more than two or three times a week you need to be on something else and three if you have a physician if you're in a, in a relationship with a physician and all the steps are being taken that they can do and you are not getting better you have to respectfully ask to see a specialist. Those would be the three things that I would take care
2: of. Well, well, thank you very much for taking the time, um, um, Leroy, Dr. Graham. It's important that people understand that they can do better. If you do better, you do better, is what Dr. Watson always tells us. Right. Uh, and I think that this is true for asthma. Uh, and I hope that we've been able to shake a few you know, trees and get people interested. And taking right, a of other steps, so thank you for that. And uh, and, uh, and Mr. Dean and I want to uh, talk to you about an information source that all asthmatics should have. So, thank you. And you can you're welcome to stay. I like. But, but part of the part of the problem with asthma is that we don't often have the resources that we need uh, in order to understand the disease, understand its management, understand its treatment, and understand its disproportionality in the African American community. And that's where we always turn to the Asthma and Allergy Network. The Asthma and Allergy Network is an organization which, which thrives on providing the latest information on all things allergy, especially on uh, all things asthma. So that if you're interested not only in uh, what the disease is about, if you're interested in, um, in what the latest uh, approach to the diagnostics are, if you're interested in knowing what you should be doing at a particular uh, phase of your asthma, The Asthma and Allergy Network is the place to go. I don't think you're gonna find a place with more robust resources. Uh, And hopefully we in the African-American Wellness Project will get there someday, but we're not there yet. Um, I I I
3: could echo that more. I have a relationship with that network with some grants and it is led by uh, Tanya Winders and she is a stalwart patient advocate. And she believes as Dr. Lenora says that everyone should know as much as they can about their asthma and expect, if not demand, in a relationship with a physician to have that asthma control. But the Allerian Asthma Network, uh, www.aanma.org, uh, is a superb resource. And uh, it is run by someone who appreciates the value of diversity and the fact that we are not all the same.
2: Yeah, and I think that really, once you need to, uh, one of the things that we always feel here at the uh, African American Wellness Project is that you should have as much information as you can about your own condition. Nobody should be able to out-talk you if you've got asthma or chronic renal problems or hypertension, a whole variety of other issues. And so I think that having the Asthma and Allergy Network for those of us who are allergists and for those of you who have asthma uh, is, an, uh, is a tremendous resource. Uh, one final piece, uh, Don. Can I, can I, I speak
0: know. on behalf of the, lay, of the layperson? I, I think
2: I think well, yeah I guess I guess that is your role
0: uh, thank you for that but uh I, I think ultimately especially when we're talking about um in, any illness there is a there there's two assumptions that, that where there's one that is happening I think fear even though people may not admit it but people are afraid to go to the doctor because there is always a potential especially if you're not feeling well there's a potential for bad news and we don't like to get bad news now, avoiding going to the doctor is going to make that bad news worse, but we, we just kick the, the, the ball down the field. We just keep kicking the can down the field. So that's the one thing that we have a tendency to do that we have to stop doing. And that's why we have these types of programs so people can get the information, get empowered, and they feel more empowered to go in and have those tough conversations. If, if there is a tough conversation. The second thing is I think people assume that every doctor is an expert. And so when they talk to a doctor, they say, what the doctor said, and there's this kind of general expert quality that gets attached to every doctor. Every doctor isn't the same. That's why we have Dr. Graham on here. He's an, you know, and so every doctor isn't the same. And so you've got to not only feel empowered to be your own best health advocate by getting information, but you also have to feel empowered to say, you know what, I'm not getting what I need from this doctor. I may need to go to another one and feel okay with that and not feel like you are disrespecting that particular uh, doctor.
3: And let me, let me add this, you know, doctors, we become patients too. So I I know a lot about asthma, but uh, when I got out of the military, about 25 years ago, I had uh, an aortic aneurysm, a leaking aortic valve. So I have an artificial aortic valve and I have to take a blood thinner. And I know I'm giving you too much details, but I want to echo what he said. When I relocated to Florida, number one, was I wanted to find the man to take care of hearts. Okay. Mm-hmm. I wanted the best and I sought that. And I always give the example we as a people, we black people are consumers. Okay. We will read everything. We will go to 10 different stores to buy a, pe- a piece of audio equipment. But yet we won't use that same scrutiny, that same, you know, stick to itness, ferreting out the best deal when we look at a doctor. Right. So basically, you understand that doctors. We, we have an expertise, but we run the same gamut of from good to bad to horrible to great. So do your homework, you know, talk to people, find out who in your area is a reliable specialist. Okay. And realize that you
0: have the right
3: to be cared for. Well, you have the right to have your asthma controlled.
0: All right. Well, man, i like to thank shop you. for your doctor like you shop for your shoes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know. Talking from experience. It helps doctors become patients. They become better
2: doctors. All <laughs> well, I'd like to thank Dr. Graham for joining us today. Uh, and for those of you who want more information or want your family and friends to have more information about asthma, uh, listen to our podcast at BlackDoctorsSpeak.org on every podcast uh, channel. Uh, Black Doctors Speak. Uh, and remember, the uh, Asthma Allergy Network is a tremendous resource for those of you who have uh, asthma or have children with asthma. Um, I think that's uh, something that you should investigate. So uh, thank you, Dr. Graham.
1: All right. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, Protect Well, thank you so much, Dr. Lenore. Remember, listeners, Black Doctor Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation with us on social media, at Black Doctors Speak, on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and at Black Doc Speak on Twitter. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.